Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Jake Teeny. Jake is the mastermind behind EverydayPsych.com. It's one of my favorite resources for psychology-related tips, but he really nails this confluence between dense research that happens in academia and how it can be applied to your real life in the real world. And he has two incredible courses on this website called Highbrow, which is gohighbrow.com. Got the links below on this page. Jake already has his master's degree. His thesis is awesome. And he's working on his final year of his PhD at Ohio State University. And he's an expert in the psychology of persuasion and what makes things more attractive. And just for complete transparency, Jake and I have been arch rivals for quite some time, (laughs) ever since we went to high school together, and he beat me in the election for class president. I've never quite gotten over that, and so we're going to get into all of that, looking at how parents can influence teenagers in the world of teenage persuasion. It's all coming up right now here with Jake Teeny on Talking to Teens. Jake, thank you so much for being here today. Really excited. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. I'm excited to be on. Okay. I mean, I think probably a a basic point to start with, I mean, so persuasion, right? It's important in all contexts, but particularly with parents and kids. It's really interesting because we do it all the time, but we rarely explore or examine the psychological components of what goes into persuasion and what makes a persuasive message, why people are persuaded. So first I'll talk about the elaboration likelihood model. That's what I have just been baptized into in that regard. And so essentially it's a very basic model of persuasion. And it says there's two routes through which people can be persuaded. These more kind of elaborative, you're thinking heavily about the message, you're considering the merits of the arguments. That's called this central route to persuasion. Or there's more along the lines of peripheral cues that you're persuaded by. So maybe the message speaker was attractive or... You know, they had a really catchy phrase, and this is the peripheral route. Now, with any sort of persuasion context, there are three main variables. There is the source of the message, which is often the parent. There's the recipient of the message, which is often the child. And then there is the message itself, which is usually a lesson or an Aesop fable or, you know, something along these lines. And depending on which side you focus on, the elaboration likelihood model will have different recommendations or uh, different kind of explanations of what to expect. So the parent gives a message to the child hoping to persuade them. The source gives a message to the recipient. Now, on one hand, maybe the kid's not paying attention very much and just says, yeah, 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 I'll do that. Sure, mom, you know. In the other case, maybe the kid's really thinking deeply about the message and considering, well, why should I do that? What's the value of it? What, you know? And even though both routes can lead to persuasion, lead to your kid doing what you would like him to do, 
they have different consequences. So if the kid's thinking a lot about it, it's more likely to instill a strong attitude. They're more likely to act on that attitude in the future. It's more likely to resist counter persuasion, so peer pressure influence. So even though maybe you were able to persuade your kid to pick up his room because you threatened to take away the Xbox, it's not going to instill a strong attitude that's going to make them act on it Sure. Uh, on their own accord of sorts. Whereas if you were able to give them a more elaborative message, you explain why you want them to do this, they kind of think of the merits of it, then maybe they'll be more likely to do that act in the future, even without the prompting. But so is that considered persuasion? I mean, if we're forcing someone to do something, mm-hmm. to what extent is that actually even persuasion? That's a great, great question because persuasion fits within the broader context of social influence. So within social influence, you have obedience, right? Someone tells you to do something and you do it. You have a request like compliance. So you ask someone to do something and then they have to decide or you just have conformity without any kind of formal request. People just go along with what people are doing. Now, persuasion particularly is more like compliance or a request is being made. Right. It's kind of somewhere between there. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think the teenage years are where we start to shift from obedience Mm -hmm. to not obedience. Right. And so as a parent, Mm -hmm. as a parent, it's like, Oh my God, my, my kid isn't like, I can't just say do this and he does it anymore. Mm -hmm. A lot of parents that I've worked with kind of fall into this trap of the request, right? And then Mm -hmm. that puts you in an interesting position when they say no or when Mm -hmm. they don't comply with the request. Like, what do I do there? And then I think you bring up the other aspect of how do I kind of like persuade them. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain point in the teenage years, and I think this happens to just about every teenager, (laughs) when the kid realizes that I don't have to listen to you anymore. Mm-hmm. That independent self. Yeah, for me, I think I was 15, 16, and it was like this light bulb turned on that was like, <laughs> wait a minute, like, I can really do whatever I want. And, uh-huh. right? and, and, and so the, the obedience shifted. And I mean, I think there's a couple mm-hmm. things that are important for persuasion. One is just like the everyday stuff that you need to get your kid to do, right? Like mm-hmm. the lawn needs to get mowed, the, the yeah. dishes need to get washed. And that's, we agreed on that. That's a thing that mm-hmm. you're supposed to do, right? And then mm-hmm. the other is like the more subtle thing that you're kind of trying to steer their course a little bit in the right direction. I, I first think it's really important, this kind of shifting of independence where the child now feels more autonomous, wants to make decisions for him or herself. And you don't have that same kind of like, dog level obedience that you had before. Sure. Yeah. And at that point, I think what's important to remember is that persuasion is now self persuasion. You're trying to get the kid to persuade him or herself to do whatever you're asking. Because in the end, you know, you can make the most compelling message in the world. But if the kid doesn't think it's compelling, it's not going to have any influence on him. And so, you know, I think a big mistake people make in persuasion is when they generate arguments to try and convince someone to do something. They're always generating arguments they think are the most persuasive, that the source thinks is the most persuasive. But that's Uh, not always what the recipient finds to be the most persuasive. And that can be challenging to do the perspective taking to think how would they react. But again, persuasion is self-persuasion first. And so you have to generate something that's going to resonate with this child. 
Yeah. Now you talked about two different scenarios, kind of those like the subtle, like maybe outside of the home, like, hey, don't drink alcohol too young, have, you know, safe sex versus kind of the daily, just like make your room, mow the lawn, you know, don't leave your dishes in the sink sort of thing. Yeah. And aspects of persuasion would apply similar to both. But one thing I think that's really distinct is that outside of the house, you're going to get more of that kind of independent child, that autonomous child making decisions for him or herself. Right. So then it's more important what you're talking about with getting them to convince themselves. Mm-hmm. Interesting. One thing that I think that everyone has to keep in mind with persuasion is this idea of reactance. So it's a common term in psychology where essentially when someone feels like their freedom is threatened, you force them to try to do something. It has the exact opposite effect and they want to do exactly what you tell them not to. You know, you say, don't press the red button. What's the first thing they want to do? Press the red button. And this goes for kids all the way to adults. Actually, one of my favorite studies is called the Romeo and Juliet effect, where essentially they looked at parental interference in the romantic relationships (laughs) and the amount of love that these children had for their partner. And they found a 0.5 correlation, which is like a moderate size relationship between uh, if the parents have higher interference, the child just doubles down on his love for or her love for this other individual. And so, you know, persuasion has kind of a negative connotation to it. You're trying to trick someone into doing something. Yeah. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Research has distinguished between like negative social control pressure tactics versus positive social influence tactics or persuasion tactics. With these negative tactics, you have things like um, talking about the negative emotions they'll feel if they don't do something or trying to make them feel guilty or demanding they do something, right? These are all kind of like negative association, this negative persuasion tactics. On the other hand, you have these more positive social influence, and that would be something like, you know, rewarding the good behavior, focusing on the positive side, you know, participating in the efforts to help the child change the behaviors. For the most part, from the research, when the parents engage in that positive side, it's met with better results than when you try to induce guilt or shame them into doing something. And again, it kind of relates to that reactance. If I'm doing it there to help you and I think it's for my best benefit too, that self-persuasion, then I'm going to be more likely to engage in it. If I feel you're trying to trick me or trying to force me into something, then I'm going to have negative emotions and want to react against it. Right. As a parent, you think, you know, it's so clear to you that they're messing up in some way Mm -hmm. and they right? Like, Mm -hmm. but I think what you're saying is so face valid, right? That like... As a parent, whatever you say, they're just going to want to do the opposite, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I was going to say, so talking about values. So, you know, trying to persuade your child to have the right values. Now, those values are going to manifest a bunch of different ways. If you want to instill this value of self-responsibility and, you know, doing what's right for you, then maybe your kid is going to take a gap year, even though you'd like to see him to go to medical school. But you're still instilling that value. And that's what's important because that's what's really going to guide their behaviors in these different directions. So maybe you want to persuade your kid to use contraception. But as we already talked about, if you explicitly give a message that you're trying to get your kid to do this thing, it may promote some reactance and they may want to do the exact opposite. 
But if instead you target the value that's related to that, you know, being unburdened going through college or, you know, living Uh... young, then that's what you're targeting and it'll have kind of spillover effects on the behaviors related to it. So they've done studies where, for example, this is a little different than children and parents, but they were trying to get people to be more positive toward affirmative action. Hmm. So if they give messages directly toward promoting affirmative action, the participants are like, nah, sure, not feeling yeah. it. Yeah. But if yeah. instead they give persuasive messages toward equality and why equality is good, yeah. then later on, those participants are more in favor of affirmative action. So again, I think targeting the value is going to be really beneficial for parents because you're helping to instill the character that you want to see. And now maybe yeah. that character manifests itself in ways you didn't expect or anticipate, but at least you know, you've know you raised them to hold kind of that true compass. I love what you're saying, which is, as a parent, can you frame a certain message in terms of a value that, that you know is important mm-hmm. to your teenager? Really effective, you know? Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. You know, we've been talking a little bit about the elaboration likelihood model. And if you want your child to be persuaded on anything, you should hope that they're persuaded through this central route, through this cognitive route, where they're really considering the merits of the arguments. And one of the ways to get someone, a recipient, to pay more attention to the message is to relate the message to a core identity, relate it to something that's self-relevant, mm. you know, and by doing that, they're going to think more on the message. They'll consider this a little more carefully and the attitude that they form or the opinion they form later is going to be stronger and is going to be more likely to guide behavior, having those more elaborative conversations. But so what would be some examples of a core identity? Yeah. So we often define ourselves by our likes and dislikes. So, you know, I'm an, I like action movies and that kind of forms part of my identity or I, I'm an environmentalist and that kind of forms part of my identity. So they can be as menial as anything that the person incorporates into the self. Roles, social roles too, right? Like I'm a parent Mm -hmm. or I'm a aunt or, um, like, I personally am vegan. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. so I adopt that as it's just a set of behaviors. But it defines part of who you are, right? Exactly, right, yeah. right. So if you can frame things in terms of my identity as mm-hmm. being from Oregon, as yeah, being uh-huh. vegan or whatever, right? That's that that's absolutely right. You know, and the only way to figure out those identities is kind of like you were saying is you you got to listen you got to yeah. listen to the person you got to observe the person you can't enforce identities upon them you can't just make it up on the fly you got to actually listen to the child and kind of hear what's going on inside their head you know i actually have some research that was recently published where we looked at environmentalists and the majority of people support like protecting the environment Hey, we probably shouldn't like drill the entire <laughs> planet to pieces. Yes. Well, well, we'll operate off of this maybe fallacy. Uh, and so, you know, we took these people who all support protecting the environments, but some people really identify with it as part of their self. This is oh, part yeah. of like, you know, their identity. And then we just essentially threatened it. We pointed out ways that they weren't good environmentalists. You know, we show they weren't always recycling all these different things to kind of, you know, threaten that identity. And interestingly, so for the people who were pro-environment but didn't really 
counted as part of their identity. When they were threatened, they kind of disengaged. And they're like, okay, maybe I'm not that good of environmentalists. For the people who identified it as part of themselves, they doubled down on that. Uh, They were writing messages about how great environmentalists they were, using more like intense language. And so like these identities, we hold them very central. And so, you know, if you're a parent and you want to shift an identity, attacking that identity is like the worst thing you could do because that's just going to make them double down on it. However, if you can leverage that identity in a sense, show them how acting more responsibly in domain X relates to their identity in domain Y, again, that self-persuasion, they're going to draw the parallels themselves. Right. You know, we talked about psychological reactants Mm -hmm. earlier. I mean, one of the tenets of psychological reactance theory is that the greater extent to which this behavior is a part of my identity, the more Mm -hmm. I'm going to resist you trying to get me to change that. So, I mean, is it obvious what are the values and like what, what's the identity of my teenager or do we have to kind of check out their Facebook and <laughs> Snapchat account and figure that out? Or, like, yeah, do a little parent stalking. I don't, right. I mean, well, if we're just trying to frame a message that's going to resonate with them mm-hmm. and we've listened to this interview, Jake Teeny, we know <laughs> values, we got to hit those core values, right? So how yeah. do we... How do we figure that out? You know, what are their values? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a a good question. And there's just so many factors that are going to determine what they identify with, what they think are the core tenets of who they are. And really, the best advice I have, at least on how to figure those out is just to listen, to talk, figure out what activities they like to do. You know, oftentimes our friends are people we think are very similar to ourselves. So looking to the friends they keep, the activities their friends do probably will in a way reflect the child as well. That is fascinating, right? We like people that we see Mm -hmm. as being like us, Mm -hmm. right? So looking to their immediate friend group. Mm -hmm. The people they interact the most with on Facebook. Yeah. We stalk them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, there was a book that came out in the 90s, now that we're kind of talking about friends and parents, that really kind of spurred this idea that parents don't have much influence over their kids. And that it's really their peer groups that are the ones that do it. And to be honest, when I've looked at the research, it's maybe a little more balanced. You definitely have peer influence, but parental influence, even in adolescence, is not absent. You know, they did a study looking at alcohol usage, and they took into effect the personal beliefs, their peer group beliefs, and their parent beliefs. Mm -hmm. And they actually found when controlling for everything, the parental influence still had a significant effect on whether or not the kids engaged in alcohol. Now, an important moderator of that or, you know, an important factor in making that happen was the warmth that the parents treated their children with. So warm parents, you know, you encourage your child to be who he or she wants to be. Uh, You speak to the child in a warm kind of kind voice. That's when the parental influence had an effect for the colder parents parental influence did not have much of an effect. And so, you know, just to say that, yes, the peer groups are going to be influential, but it doesn't mean that parents have lost all control. I mean, as a parent, you think in terms of what have I told my teenager and what have I communicated and what rules have I made, right? But like, in terms of the scientific literature, like if you can communicate clearly to your teenager what your values are, and what your mm-hmm. attitudes are and what your expectations are, it means a lot, right? It goes a long way. For sure. 
We're here with persuasion expert Jake Teeny, but we're not done yet. In the second half of the interview, we get even more in-depth. It's like that classic study where they tell you not to think about a white bear, mm-hmm. and then all you can do is think about white bears. Mm-hmm. Like, the more you tell your teen, don't do this, yes. all they can think about is doing it. Exactly. One thing you can do is almost address the reactants head on and be like, hey, I'm your parent, but you're an independent teenager. You are free to make the decisions you want to make. I'm going to provide my advice and guidance. Yeah. So right off the bat, they're like, okay, they're not trying to force me to do anything, right? They're not mandating. And then you can get into maybe a little more of an elaborative discussion about it. When I was 16, I was dating a girl who was 17, and I wanted to take her to see this R-rated movie. I couldn't even buy the ticket. Yes, I had to get my dad to buy me the ticket, which he was super cool about. But then I was like, all right, so I'm going to drive her. And he's like, well, you're not through your six months of your driving permit, so you're not allowed to have other strangers in the car that aren't family. And oh man, my reactants flared at that and I was so upset. Da, da, da. But he did something very similar to you. And he's like, hey, I remember when I was 16 and I wanted to do this and my dad wouldn't let me and it made me so pissed and yeah. blah, blah, you know. And I was still not happy, but I didn't drive. I didn't drive. I had her drive. You know, he was able uh, to get through to me. And I think partly because, you know, he first brought in that kind of similarity. Hey, Listen, I screwed up as a kid, too. Yeah. I was once in your similar desires. And then he kind of went in with his very good arguments and just had sure. value-based arguments. And I wasn't happy right away, but, you know. I mean, the two tenets of whether or not you process a message is ability. So are you high negative emotion? Are you distracted? Can you understand what's being said? So that's all ability things. And then motivation. Do you care about the message? Is it relevant to me? Are there consequences that matter? You know, And so between those two things are how you're going to be able to kind of get your child to actually consider the arguments you're presenting. I'm going to give one little insider tip to the parents. And so this is maybe a little nefarious, but, you know, it's maybe good to have in your back pocket every now and then. We were talking about choices earlier and how the framed is either yes or either. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.